The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. I wanted to read a portion of Psalm 22 before going back to the Gospels. We are in John 19. Last week, we actually talked about the crucifixion of Jesus. We saw that in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all had a similar phrase. John 19:18 says, There they crucified him. Those are really the only details it gives of the actual physical crucifixion. There they crucified him. What I wanted to highlight today are some scenarios that went on during the time of Christ while he was actually hanging on the cross. The best that we can discern from the four Gospels, Jesus was crucified before noon possibly as early as 9 a.m. in the morning. But we know for sure it was before noon. And he hung on the cross until at least 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So he was literally hanging on the cross anywhere up to 5 or 6 hours. 5 or 6 hours. And there were probably hundreds of people at the foot of the cross outside the city gate of Jerusalem during that entire 5 and 6 hours standing there. Maybe some of them even began to sit watching the crucifixion, just watching Jesus hang there for six hours. And some amazing things transpired during that six-hour period. But what I, what I want you to look at Psalm 22. And as I read verses 1 through about 18 or so, the vantage point here is Jesus talking. Now keep in mind, this is amazing. Psalm 22, written by King David, 1,000 B.C. 1,000 years before Christ was born and died, this Scripture was penned. And it is prophetic in incredible graphic detail, detailing the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and His perspective as the Messiah as He hung on the cross. So it's really an autobiography of the Messiah of Jesus. Psalm 22, absolutely amazing. And what makes for another enlightening study is to read Psalm 22 together with Isaiah 53. Psalm 22 written a thousand years before Christ, Isaiah 53 written 750 years before Christ, and they are both prophetic of the Messiah being crucified. Isaiah 53 is God the Father's vantage point, and the emphasis there is of Him punishing His Son on the cross, spiritually speaking. So Isaiah 53 is the vantage point of the Father punishing Jesus on the cross, and Psalm 22 is complimentary. It is the vantage point of Jesus being punished and mocked by His human opponents around the cross. Two different perspectives talking about the same thing at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and I'm just going to read somewhat quickly Psalm 22. Some of the verses are going to highlight what we're going to talk about at the Gospels today. And it starts out in verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you did not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. O oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, and thee our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you did deliver them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. This is Jesus speaking from the cross as He looks at people mocking Him for five hours. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. Yet you are He who did bring me forth from the womb. You did make me trust when upon my mother's breasts, upon... You I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, 
and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you did lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil doers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Go ahead and flip to the Gospels now. And actually, I wanted you to be in Matthew chapter 27 today. We're going to look at a couple of passages out of Matthew and Luke 23 that actually are parallel accounts of what what happened and transpired at the crucifixion during that five to six hour period. All four Gospels give us a holistic picture of what happened during this time of crucifixion. And here's an incident or several incidents. Some are mentioned by John in his Gospel. Some are not mentioned by John, but they're mentioned in the other Gospels. And I did want to, I don't want to skip over those because they're so important. And the implications for us are profound. And we could be blessed by looking at those. So I do want to zero in on Matthew 27, verses 39 and following today. And then at Luke 23. And the sermon I call today, Mockers of Jesus. Mockers of Jesus. I remember definitively, I did not grow up in a Christian home a Bible-believing Christian home. It was a somewhat quasi-religious home every here and there, but for the most part, totally secular, totally pagan. Did not read the Bible, didn't know about the Bible. Knew cultural Jesus, cultural Christianity, but not really the Bible until I was age 19. It was the first time I ever read the Bible. So I grew up a pretty worldly, secular, American, pagan life with a little religion here and there. I believed in God. I knew God was real. Couldn't deny that. But I didn't want to submit my life to God. And I distinctly remember that, my attitude, especially when I entered into junior high and high school, just became quite rebellious towards authority, towards God, not so much outwardly, but in my heart. I was a nice kid, but on the inside, a rebel. And I remember somebody started sharing the gospel. I think I was 17, 16 or 17, the first time I ever heard the gospel. Can you imagine? 17 years old. Never heard the gospel until I was 17. And when I heard it, I knew it was true. But I wasn't ready yet. And this brother kept sharing the gospel with me. Do you believe Jesus is Lord? Yes. Do you believe in heaven? Yes. Do you believe in hell? Yes. Do you believe if you die without Christ, you go to hell? Yes. Do you want to receive Jesus in your heart right now? No. I knew it was true. And kept God at arm's distance for about two or three years, 17 to age 19. But I remember when I was, I think, going into my senior year in high school, this good friend of mine, he was a Christian, took an interest in me. And first person to ever share the gospel with me. He worked for uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, it was called, and also Athletes in Action. Those were two Christian ministries that ministered the gospel through sports. And so there was an FCA camp in Colorado, Estes Park, Colorado, uh, in July. And it was for high school boys. And he invited me to go. I think at this time he became my brother-in-law. Yeah, married my sister. So I had to go. So he invited me to come. And I said, well, I don't have any money. Well, I'm paying for it. Oh, what other excuse do I have? Um, I've got homework. No, school's not in session. Okay, I guess I'll go. Um, So I ended up going to this FCA camp for three days in Estes Park, Colorado. And it was a sports camp and it was a Christian camp and... They'd have activities during the day and sports activities and basketball and you're on a team and you're competing against all these different teams and I was on a team and um, basketball was a big part of it. And Then at night they'd have chapel time for about an hour and a half and they'd have music, this Christian music, and they'd have a sermon and then they'd break up and then they'd go into these huddles or small group time in the cabins. And I, ha- I was assigned a cabin with about eight other, nine other guys, high school boys. Uh, and there was about 800 boys at this conference, this Christian conference. I'd never been to anything like that. I was not a Christian. I thought it was weird. I remember the first time we had chapel and they're singing all these songs and people raising their hands and all this stuff to God and Jesus. And I'm like, I immediately went to the very back of the, of the place. The chapel sat in the back row. And there was a couple other guys there. And I just became a mocker for three days. Chapel in the morning, chapel in the evening. I was a heckler. I was a mocker for an hour and a half during the entire time. While they were singing songs, while the preacher was preaching, I was a mocker. Audible. 
visible, blatant mocker. And then during huddle time, it was terrible because I was miserable in what I inflicted on my small group leader, which was my brother-in-law. He was trying to get us all into a small group, and I never wanted to participate. And we're in the cabin sitting on the floor, and there's eight guys, and I refused to participate. And I just sat up on my bunk and just kind of watched them with the chip on my shoulder. And my brother-in-law, he was great. Patient. Didn't make, you know shame me in front of everybody. He knew where, where my heart was, but he knew that the seed had been planted it had to be the Spirit of God working on my heart. But the point was, I was a mocker of Jesus. Which really deserved death. Rejected God, rejected Christ, rejected the Gospel. That deserved eternal death. Well, two years later, God in His mercy saved me. The mocker. In a basketball gymnasium. Amazing. But we have mockers today. Nothing has changed. And we're going to see that people have been mocking Jesus Christ for 2,000 years. They mock Jesus even though He isn't here on earth today. We have some world-class mockers who have unbelievable megaphones to mock Christ today as I think about some of the most well-known, blatant, unbridled mockers of Christ who are very influential in society. Ted Turner is one of them of TNT News. He's been mocking Christ vocally, verbally, blatantly for about 15 years now. Going on record time and time again saying that uh, Christianity is a religion for wimps. And he just did it again recently in a news interview. Keith Olbermann, who's uh, one of the key news anchors for MSNBC, a blatant mocker of Christianity on a routine basis. Uh, The Colbert guy, the Colbert Report, who's supposed to be a comedian, has no trouble mocking Christ from a humorous point of view, blaspheming Him time and time again. David Letterman has done it for 20 years in the name of humor, blasphemy, mocking Christ. But they're no different than I was, a mocker. So there's hope for these people. But like I said, mocking Christ has been going on for 2,000 years. And around the cross for five to six hours, there were mockers, blatant, audible Visible mockers of Christ, even while he was hanging on the cross. That's what I want to look at today. So let's go ahead and look at those. And it starts in Matthew 27. And there are four groups of mockers of Christ. So we'll start and look at the first group of people who mocked Christ. Matthew 27, 39 to 40. And that's point number one. While on the cross, Jesus was taunted by the people to taunt somebody, to tease them, to irritate them, to publicly humiliate them. That's what happened when Jesus was on the cross. While on the cross, Jesus was taunted by the people, the masses. The Gospels are clear that when Jesus was on trial before Pilate and the Jews who were accusing him, the Sanhedrin, they were out in the street screaming at Pilate who was in his balcony of his palace. That's where they had the trial. And out on that public street, a crowd just kept growing and growing during the course of that two or three hour trial out there in the middle of Jerusalem during Passover on a holiday. And as the sun rose, people began to wake up. and There was all kinds of confusion and noise. And the the crowd just kept growing and growing there during that trial. To the point where the Gospels called it a great multitude, which is the same phrase used of the feeding of the 5,000, which was really feeding of 25,000. This could have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people packed in the street as this trial went on. Huge, massive crowd of people. And these were the same crowd who later on as the trial went on, who were poisoned by the Jewish leaders as they were whispering around, uh, telling them that Jesus was a blasphemer, that they should cry out, give us Jesus, crucify Him, release Barabbas, crucify Him, crucify Him. So they got to a a frenzied point in unison where this massive multitude of a crowd was screaming for the blood of Jesus. That's called the multitude. These were Jews. It was during feast day. Some of them were pilgrims, but many of them were residents of Jerusalem. And many of them had seen the ministry of Jesus Christ for over three years because every feast day he was down in Jerusalem speaking publicly in the temple, doing miracles all over the place. Countless miracles. So there is no question that people in the crowd, in the multitude, crying for the blood of Jesus 
were some of the very people who heard Jesus teach and maybe at one time even believed he was the Messiah. And I I am convinced that some of these people were there five days previous at uh, on Palm Sunday when it says in the Gospel of John and the other Gospels that the whole city came out to meet him. And it was Passover weekend. A million plus Jews packed the city of Jerusalem. And in broad daylight, the whole city came out to meet Jesus as he entered in on the donkey. And they were claiming, uh, Hosanna in the highest and declaring him Messiah. The multitudes, same word used, a great crowd. This is the fickle mob. So five days before, they're welcoming him as the Messiah, Hosanna. Five days later, they're yelling for his blood, crucify him, crucify him. And then in Matthew 27, it says this, verse 39. Oh, it also says um, that in Luke 23, 27, that as Jesus was, uh, Pilate pronounced sentence and gave Jesus over to be crucified and Jesus began to carry his own cross out of the city of Jerusalem, uh, Luke 23, 27 says that a great multitude of the people followed Jesus as he carried his cross. This huge mass, like I said, hundreds and hundreds of people following Him. They want to see blood. They followed Jesus out, then they crucified Him, and here's this crowd, this massive, large crowd. The great multitude is there at the cross. Many of them stayed during that five to six hour period. And during that time, we don't know what time, but sometime during the five and six hour period, here's what many of these people said. Verse 39 of Matthew 27 says, And those passing by, these were the spectators. These were just the normal people. This was just the crowd. And those passing by were hurling abuse at Him, wagging their heads. Were hurling abuse. That verb. Just so you know, it's an imperfect verb, which means it is an ongoing, continuous, and repeated action. This was a prolonged action. It was continuous. It was going on and on. Continual, ongoing mockery of Jesus Christ as they're watching Him hang on the cross. Those passing by, they were hurling abuse at Him, wagging their heads in disgust and utter disdain. And they started saying things. Verse 40 says, And they were saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself! Messiah? See, we know that these are people who are somewhat familiar with His ministry. At least some of them were because they are referring to an incident that happened three years previous during a Passover. We saw it in John 2 where Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And then they brought this up three years later when they tried to uh, accuse Him of blasphemy or defiling the temple and speaking about God's temple. And so in Matthew 27, it says they got some witnesses to come up and to testify against Jesus saying this man said He was going to destroy the temple and that He could build it up again. Well, they twisted Jesus' words because... They said that Jesus said He would destroy the temple, which is not true. Because what Jesus actually said, He was telling the Pharisees, destroy this temple. You kill Me. You are the ones that destroy the temple. Jesus didn't say He was going to do it. So they twisted His words. False testimony. But no doubt, that was, that was public. He said it publicly. And a lot of these Jews who were there in Jerusalem heard Jesus say that. It probably shocked them to no end that He would say that. And they were confused by it. And they, they can, this is lingering on in their head three years later. Isn't this the guy who said he was going to destroy the temple and then raise it up again in three days? Who does this guy think he is? And look at him. He's now totally helpless. Can't even defend himself. He doesn't have any followers to protect him. And here he's hanging on a cross. He can't be the Messiah. So they mock him. It's safe to mock him now. He could do miracles once. He could raise the dead, but he can't do anything now. He's totally helpless. He's on a cross. He's crucified. They were passing by, hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Messiah, come down from the cross. Utter mockery. You know what's amazing? They were saying this out of ignorance. They were saying this out of hatred. They were saying this out of being totally superficial and fickle and really not getting their way because they want a Messiah who was going to give them material blessings and deliverance from the Romans and He didn't give that. He was a Messiah who called them to repentance for the forgiveness of sin. That isn't what they wanted, for the most part. So he didn't fulfill their desires, their whims, their dreams. What's amazing in this, they were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. Psalm 22, verse 7 that we read, that was written a thousand years before Christ died. 
The Messiah said a thousand years beforehand that those who would mock Him would wag their heads. Unbelievable. Psalm 22 predicted they would hurl insults at Him and wag their heads. The people. So while Jesus was on the cross, He was taunted by the people. Number two, there were other mockers there that day around the cross. Number two is while on the cross, Jesus was blasphemed by the Jewish leaders. Blasphemed. That was a sin that warranted the death penalty in the book of Moses in the Old Testament. It was the worst sin, just about, that you could commit. Blasphemy is to misuse God's name or to blatantly defy and sin against God and His character and His name. That's when you knowingly mock God or knowingly, willfully, deliberately mock Jesus very specifically. Blasphemy. While on the cross, Jesus was blasphemed by the Jewish leaders. Verse 41 of Matthew 27 says this about these mockers. In the same way, just as the people who passed by taunted Jesus, in the same way the chief priests, that was the elite, that included chief priests of past time like Annas and Caiaphas and several other priests, they were all part of the Sanhedrin. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, they, they were the masters of the Old Testament. They preserved it. They wrote it. They had it memorized. They taught it. They knew the Old Testament. This is totally ironic. They are the masters of the Old Testament and what it taught. And these Jews, these scribes, and even Orthodox, Orthodox unbelieving Jews today believe that the Messiah cannot die. The Messiah cannot die. But they were scribes, and if they just read their own Scripture, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after sin, predicted the Messiah would die. He would crush Satan's head, and in return, Satan would pierce the Messiah in his heel. Genesis 3.15, 4,000 years before Christ was born. You know what's amazing about that? Is that the normal way that Romans would crucify people, they would, either do it, they would either hang them with ropes or at times they would put nails in their hands and in their feet. And what they typically would do in the feet, and their, the bodies from tombs that have been preserved have been discovered even in this last century that have been preserved that we have today of people who were crucified by Romans. And what is distinctive is they put nails in the hands and they would put one nail in the feet and it would go and they'd twist the feet like this and the nail would go through the heel of both feet, which is exactly what Genesis 3 said. Bruised on the heel. So it's all over Scripture that the Messiah had to die and yet these Jews, those who should know best of all that the Messiah had to die, they reject that. It was a stumbling block to the Jews. That's why Paul said, a crucified Messiah is foolishness to Gentiles. That's stupid. Your leader, he got crucified and was rejected. What's up with that? That is foolish to a Gentile. The crucifixion of a Messiah and Savior to the Jews was a stumbling block, a scandal, a barrier to their sensibilities, religiously speaking, because they knew from the Old Testament the only people that got crucified were the accursed ones, says Deuteronomy. The most accursed ones. Don't tell me my Messiah is the accursed one. So it was a stumbling block to the Jews. So that's their frame of mind here. They cannot possibly conceive of a crucified Messiah as their king. But they only believed half of the Scriptures. So in the same way, the chief priests, also along the scribes and the elders, that those three groups constituted the Sanhedrin. Those 70 religious, authoritative Jewish uh, men who ruled over social life, religious life, and political life really in Jerusalem and the religion of the Jews. This was the Supreme Court of Israel. The entire Sanhedrin was there at the foot of the cross. Nicodemus was there. Secret believer. Joseph of Arimathea was there. Secret believer. The whole Sanhedrin. And the majority of the Sanhedrin is mocking Jesus as He's hanging on the cross. So here's what it says in verse 41. So the whole Sanhedrin, they were mocking Him. What were they saying? He saved others. See, they couldn't deny His miracles. They knew he did. They couldn't deny it. 
As a matter of fact, they got mad at him. The only thing they could say is, well, he did a miracle on the Sabbath day. Sinner. They never denied the reality of his miracles. And then in the end, what did they do? They attributed the power of his amazing miracles to the devil. Yeah, you did a miracle, but you did it by the power of Satan. So they didn't deny his miracles. They knew he was a miracle worker. He saved others, so it's an admission. He cannot save. He can't save himself. He does miracles for three and a half years, and now he can't even save himself. How pathetic. He isn't the Savior. He's the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we shall believe in him. No, they won't. Most of them won't. Verse 43, they went on to say, He trusts in God. Notice they are not talking directly to Jesus. They're talking to the crowd. I just don't think they have the guts to talk directly to Jesus while He's hanging on the cross. They're talking to the crowd. They're trying to egg the crowd on. He trusts in God. Here's what they said. He trusts in God. Let Him deliver Him now if He takes pleasure in Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. You know what's amazing here? Is they're mocking. They are quoting Scripture. They are quoting Psalm 22 and they don't even know it. They're experts of the law. Some of these scribes probably had Psalm 22 memorized and here spontaneously they're quoting these words Mocking Jesus, not even realizing they're fulfilling prophecy. This group of mockers was the most accountable of all. They are to be the most pitied of all. They have the highest accountability. They had more information about the Messiah and Scripture and what God required of His people than anybody else. To whom much is given, much shall be required. Mockers. There's another group of mockers aside from the people and the Jewish leaders, and that's number three. While on the cross, Jesus was insulted by the robbers. John told us that last week. We saw that, that uh, when he got to the place of where he was crucified at Golgotha, it says that two other men were crucified with him. Two other robbers. The Greek word is very specific. It doesn't refer to petty thieves. It's the same word that was used to describe Barabbas, who was called a murderer. These were brutal, hard-hearted Vicious criminals and killers. As a matter of fact, Mark 15.7 says this, Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionist. There were other men imprisoned with Barabbas for the same crime. Imprisoned with Barabbas who had committed murder. I believe it was these two guys. These two murderers, these two insurrectionists. That's why Jesus replaced Barabbas. So if Jesus hadn't been replaced, it would be Barabbas and these two guys getting executed. Cold-blooded killers. And they were on either side of Jesus and Jesus was crucified in the middle. Matthew 27, 44 says this. So it tells us the people mocked. tells us the high priest leadership mocked. And then verse 44, and it says, and the robbers also. And they were probably Jews, these robbers. And the robbers also who had been crucified with Jesus were casting the same insults at Jesus. They were just overwhelmed by pressure. Here they are hanging, dying. And they have the wherewithal to mock Jesus who is also dying at their very side. Mocking Him, taunting Him, saying the same things that these other people did. Their assumption was, well, He's being crucified and Pilate gave permission, therefore He must be guilty. Therefore He deserves to die. That's how easily swayed human beings can be. You, you don't even know anybody. People like to see a fight. They like to see blood. That's how it is in high schools, isn't it? Fight, fight, fight. They just want to see it. And they got caught up in this. So they insult Jesus, mocking Him. Who knows for how long during that five to six hour period. And finally, there's one more group of people who mocked Jesus. That's number four. And we look at Luke 23 for this. Number four, while on the cross, Jesus was reviled by the soldiers. These are the Roman soldiers. These are the Roman soldiers doing the bidding of Pontius Pilate. They had the authority to make the crucifixion happen. They had the authority and had the responsibility of carrying out the actual execution. These Roman soldiers were Gentiles. These Roman soldiers in all likelihood didn't even know who Jesus was. Many of them probably never had even seen or heard of Jesus before that day because it could be very well be that they came with Pilate from Caesarea just for the feast day. They weren't even from Jerusalem. Uh, the Scripture says that there were four soldiers that were assigned to Jesus uh, and also says that there was a centurion who was in charge of all the Roman soldiers. 
So it was not uncommon to have a minimum of four soldiers for each criminal that was being executed. Three men being executed, you got 12 soldiers plus a centurion plus others to help to protect the process of execution so that people wouldn't intervene and try to either physically taunt those hanging on the cross or even sometimes try to get them to be released. So they were mob control. So we don't know how many Roman soldiers there were, but there were many. And we do know that there was a centurion who was in charge of everything, a very prestigious Roman soldier, centurion in charge of a hundred men. We don't know how many of his hundred men were here, but he had several Roman soldiers fully armed with him. And he just assumed probably that Jesus was guilty and a criminal because his boss, Pilate, said he is to be executed. And a Roman soldier just does his duty. And for all he knew, Jesus was guilty. Other than the fact that the Roman soldiers probably heard the trial and they probably heard their boss and leader Pilate say at least three times, he is not guilty. So they may have been confused, but in the end, when your boss says something, they obey. And they did it wholeheartedly, abusively, because it was the Roman soldiers, once Pilate gave Jesus over to the Jews, it was the Roman soldiers who took Jesus secretly into the palace, behind closed doors, beat Him up, ripped off His clothes, put a crown of thorn on His heads, gave Him a scepter, hit Him upside the head with that scepter, punched Him in the face, spit on Him, ripped His clothes off, pulled out His beard, whipped Him almost to death twice and mocked Him and made fun of Him. Oh, King of Israel! These were the same Roman soldiers. They thought it was funny, even though they probably didn't know who Jesus was. So when they finally get there, to the place where Jesus was to be crucified and executed, they're no different than anybody else because Luke 23, 36, and 37 says this. After they took off His garments and after people were sneering at Him, verse 36 says, And the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, also mocked Jesus coming up to Him in His face. Can you imagine? They think that when people were crucified, they only hung about a foot from the ground. Very close. Very accessible. The soldiers also mocked Jesus coming up to Him, offering Him sour wine to mock Him. They didn't really want to help him or satisfy him. Sometimes the sour wine actually uh, would revive people, which was not a good thing if you're being crucified. Because you wanted to die as soon as possible. This was prolonging the agony. This was not help. It was mockery. See how long we can keep him alive so we can torture him. Verse 37, and this is what they were saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself! So you got the mockers. The people, the Jewish leaders criminals, and the Roman soldiers. And then point number five, well, how does Jesus respond to mockers? There really is no worse sin. I mean, all sin is bad. All sin is unrighteousness. All sin brings about death. But the worst kind of sin is sin that is directly addressed in hostility to God the Creator and Jesus the Savior. That is the worst kind of sin. And all four groups of these people committed the worst conceivable sin possible. That is very important for us to keep in mind in the forefront. Has anybody ever sinned against you? That's a rhetorical question. Of course they have, haven't they? Has anybody sinned against you this week? Probably. Probably. Have you sinned against anybody? Probably. No, yeah. I have. Have any of these offenses and sins been worse than anything that these four groups of people did? Absolutely not. Mocking and blaspheming Jesus Christ defiantly, willfully, publicly is the worst thing a sinner can do and deserves really the deepest recesses of hell forever. Well, what does Jesus, the King, the Judge, the Messiah do? How does He respond to these mockers as He is there for five to six hours enduring all this mockery? Is it just meeting out judgment? You'll get yours. Was He screaming from the cross? You'll get yours. You just wait. He didn't do that. So let's look at Luke 23. Verse 34 
after they crucified him, it says that the robbers were on the right and on the left. And this was probably what Jesus said seven things from the cross that we know of during that five to six hour period. And all, all commentators, Bible teachers agree, for the most part, that of the seven things he said, this was probably the first thing that he said. And it was probably early on, before noon. So the crucifixion is fresh. The hostility is fresh. The mockery is coming in stereo from all over the crowd. And despite all the mockery and the hatred and the shame, Jesus responds, and I believe he yelled it out. Being crucified among the mockery, Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. That's his response. That is the response of the merciful Savior. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive my mockers. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. That was Jesus' response to mockers. That was Jesus' response to me when I was in high school. Father, forgive that mocker. And he did. Father, forgive them. Horrible, heinous, egregious, unparalleled sin. Yet, Father, forgive them. Boy, do you have that kind of forgiveness? Do I have that kind of forgiveness? What was his reason? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Much of what they're doing is in ignorance. This was definitely true of the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, because they probably never met Jesus before this day. They didn't know his history. They didn't know what he taught. They didn't know uh, how personally the Jewish leaders and what they were doing and what hypocrites they were. They were just doing their duty and they're executing the Son of God out of ignorance. That's what Jesus meant. Forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Now, there were some in the crowd that definitely knew what they were doing. But for the most part, probably the majority didn't know what they were doing. They didn't understand the implications at that point. So Jesus is praying, interceding on behalf of sinners. Father, have mercy. Father, be gracious. Father, forgive. Father, work in their hearts. Convict them of sin. Open their eyes. Allow them to see the truth. That's really what He was saying. We know this is what He was saying because Isaiah 53 that talks about this in detail of Jesus' suffering, it says in verse 53 of Isaiah Uh, chapter 53, verse 12, He Himself, the Messiah, bore the sin of many on the cross. And while He did, it says, and He interceded for the transgressors. That's what a high priest does. Intercedes for sinners. Prays for sinners. Goes to God on behalf of sinners to pave a path for the sinner to get to heaven. And Jesus literally already is being high priest while on the cross. God, I pray for these sinners. I pray for these mockers that they would be saved. That's why Jesus came. He came to save mockers. You know what the amazing and exciting good news is? Jesus' prayers are always answered. Can I get an amen to that one? Amen. His prayers are always answered. I want to read a couple of other verses, by the way, regarding this blasphemous sin of mocking Jesus. Jesus Himself said in Mark 3, 2, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. There is no unforgivable sin from God's point of view. If there's true repentance. There is no unforgivable sin. That is amazing. There's hope for everybody. All sins shall be given the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. Matthew 12.32 Whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, anybody that sins against Me and mocks Me even, Jesus the Savior, it shall be forgiven Him. Conditioned upon repentance. Recognizing your sin is the clear message of Scripture. So when Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, Jesus wasn't teaching universalism that everybody would be saved no matter what. That is not what He was saying. We know the rest of Scripture is clear. Jesus' teaching and ministry was clear. There is no such thing as unconditional forgiveness. Did you know that? Christians sometimes say that, write it, preach on it. That is not true. There is no such thing as unconditional forgiveness. The condition of God's forgiveness is the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, repenting of sin and turning to Him. That is the condition. And when you do that, you have total forgiveness, past, present and future in Christ. That is the good news. And Jesus even said that. Mockers of me can be forgiven. And like I said, Jesus' prayers always 
get answered. And I want to show you real quickly how his prayers were specifically answered with each one of these groups. Let's go back to number one. While on the cross, Jesus was taunted by the people. Some of the people in this crowd, in this multitude, who were Jews, who heard Jesus teach, maybe even saw him do a miracle and benefited from his ministry, who turned on him and cried for his blood and mocked him at the cross, some of these people got saved. Acts chapter 2. Jesus died, rose again, ascended into heaven. Forty days later, the Holy Spirit came, empowered the apostles. Peter began to preach to the people. He started in Jerusalem, preaching to the Jews, the very ones who had Jesus executed. And one of uh, Peter's first sermons is in Acts chapter 2. Verse 22, he addresses the crowd. It's still holiday time, feast time. The streets were filled. Jews everywhere. And Peter addresses these men. They are unbelieving Jews. Acts 2.22, men of Israel, listen to these words. And he gives the gospel. It's all about Jesus. His death, his resurrection, fulfillment of prophecy, why he did it. Crowd of 5,000 plus people probably listening to Peter's sermon. And then Peter concludes his sermon. In verse 37, the people are convicted. And now when they heard these words from Peter, they were pierced to the heart, greatly convicted. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? We've murdered the Messiah. Verse 38, and Peter said to them, Peter said to the crowd, Peter said to the multitudes, Peter said to the mockers, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and for the promises for you and for your children and all who are far off, all who are far off, mockers of the ages. That was me. And as many of the Lord, your God shall call to himself. Well, many responded. Verse 41, it says, So then those who had received the word by Peter, they heard the gospel, were convicted, believed, they were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You got a revival. That is awesome. Jesus' prayer was answered. Father, forgive them. He did. He saved them. He saved many in the multitude. What about the second category? These priests, the Sanhedrin. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They were guilty. They had blood on their hands. Well, all the groups, of all the groups of people I wouldn't want to be having mercy would be these guys. But I don't have the heart of God like Jesus does. And His prayer was even an intercession on behalf of these men. We know this is true because in Acts chapter 6, the same book, the apostles are preaching. They're going everywhere. The doctrine is filling all of Jerusalem. The church is turning the world upside down. It's even uh, has an influence before the Sanhedrin. And these men who are responsible directly for the death of Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 6, verse uh, 6, it says, And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Verse 7, And the word of God kept on spreading. That's the gospel, the ministry of the early church. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. Get this. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Amen. The worst of the worst believed in Christ, repented, and God forgave them. He forgave the greatest of mockers. That's awesome. Well, what about these robbers, the two thieves on the cross? We'll look at this more in depth. But So there are the two men. At the beginning, they're mocking Jesus, taunting Him. They don't believe Him. They think He deserves death. And they're hanging there on the cross with Him for five hours getting a front row seat of all the interaction and especially of the six sayings of Jesus Christ that are going out during that time. And the response of Jesus and how He's not retaliating and how He's not cursing them and calling God's wrath down upon their heads. This convicted one of these criminals. Pierced him to the heart. Because Luke tells us about it in Luke 23. Absolutely amazing. Verse 39... um, so verse 39, and one of the criminals uh, who were hanged there was hurling abuse, still hurling abuse at Jesus. Going on. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. Save us too. Verse 40, but the other, but the other criminal answers. He had a change of heart. Rebuked that other criminal and he said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, which is of death, and we indeed justly, we deserve to die for we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man, this Jesus, he has done nothing wrong. Wow, that was the conclusion this robber came up with. He got the evidence and he came to the right conclusion, which Pilate couldn't do. 
He has done nothing wrong. And this criminal who's on the cross who was dying, and he was saying, he was pleading, he turned to Jesus, the high priest, who he just heard say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. You know, he was asking for forgiveness of sin. He recognized that Jesus was God. He was the Savior. He was the Messiah. He had a kingdom. And the kingdom was in the next life. His eternal soul could be entrusted to Jesus. This criminal. Ignorant, uneducated criminal. And Jesus' amazing response, verse 43, and Jesus turned to him, hanging on the cross, and said, Truly, truly, absolutely true, this is a fact. It is undeniable. One of the greatest verses in the Bible. Truly, I say to you, as the King, as God, as the Savior, today, this very day, isn't that amazing? Today you will be with me. Where's heaven? I'd say anywhere Jesus is. Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus died that day. This criminal died that day. The moment that criminal breathed his last, he was ushered and catapulted into the immediate presence of heaven with Jesus and with the Father. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Forgiveness of sin. Jesus' prayer was answered regarding this robber. He was an ignorant man and he was convicted with the truth and repented and was saved by a gracious Savior, Jesus. And then finally, the last group. Well, what about these Roman soldiers? who beat Jesus to a bloody pulp. And were actually the ones who... They did the dirtiest deed of all. They actually put the nails in His hands and His feet. There can't possibly be forgiveness for those guys. Well, yeah, there can. Because Jesus' prayer, Father, forgive them. They were probably the most ignorant of all. They don't know what they're doing. They taunted Jesus, sold and mocked Him. We already saw that. Uh, but here's the great verse, Matthew 27. Roman soldiers, remember, the Roman soldiers, they had to stay there the longest. They had to stay there from the very beginning to the very end because they had to take care of the body and everything. So they're sitting there for four or five, six hours listening to all that's going on, the interchange between Jesus and His mockers. They were convicted. They were incredibly convicted. And Matthew 27, verse 54 says this, uh, Now the centurion, the main guy who was in charge, and those who were with him, probably uh, could be a couple dozens of Roman soldiers as far as we know, uh, who were keeping guard over Jesus... When they saw the earthquake, there was an earthquake according to other scriptures, and even earlier in Matthew 27. At one point, about midday, all of a sudden there was darkness that suddenly came over the entire land that was supernatural darkness. It wasn't an eclipse. It was the darkness of God's judgment came over at midday as a sign of wrath and judgment as God the Father was turning His back on the Son as the Son absorbed all the sin of the world on Himself for sinners. So that was overwhelming. That was a sign from heaven. Not only that, it says there was this tremendous, unparalleled earthquake. They didn't just feel the earthquake. They saw the earthquake. They saw the ground moving. And the mountains moving and everything else. Or the hills. They were pierced to the heart. It says when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, like the darkness and all the exchange of the gracious Messiah towards His mockers, it says they became very frightened. It's the worst kind of fear. Possible. Struck to the heart, afraid to the point of death. And it wasn't the physical things they were fearing. They were overcome with an awe of a fear of God and of Jesus. They heard Jesus before Pilate where Jesus said He was the Son of God or He was a King. And they heard the Jews call Jesus Son of God. And in the Romans' minds, this was He made a claim to deity. So when they became frightened, when they became convicted, when they came to the right conclusion about Jesus was, they finally declared in unison the, the centurion and all the soldiers with him, it says, truly this was the Son of God. Truly, literally, this is God's Son. Isn't that amazing? Once again, Jesus' prayer very specifically answered on behalf of sinners for these pagan Roman soldiers. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. Now they know what they're doing. They realize this is God's Son that we have killed. God, have mercy on us. And I, I believe many of the Roman soldiers got saved that day. Went home, changed men, regenerate. That's the awesome power, love, grace, mercy, patience of a holy God.
And he's still saving mockers today, isn't he? I know I was a mocker. If you still don't trust in Jesus Christ and know Him personally, it's not too late for you. If you're a mocker of God and of Christ, you've got to turn to Him. You've got to do what these four groups of people did. You've got to be humbled. You've got to be pierced to the heart and embrace Him as Savior and He will not turn you away. Also, another great reminder for all of us is the forgiving heart of Jesus Christ. There is no sin that you have committed against anybody else. There is no sin that anybody has committed against you that is greater than the sin that these people committed against Jesus Christ Himself and yet He forgave them. How much more should we as the people of God forgive others? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You for, for being a saving God. Lord Jesus, thank You for being the Savior. And thank You for showing us very clearly through Scripture of how it really happened in history. Thank You for the work of Your Holy Spirit that was at work invisibly and behind the scenes in all these people. Wooing them, convicting them, softening their hearts, uh, penetrating their conscience with truth. And You do the same today. And we know that no one can come to You apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, the truth of the Gospel. We pray You continue to keep softening and working on the hearts of mockers. I know that we have friends, colleagues, co-workers, family members even, that still don't know You. We, we know You can still save and do miracles just as You did then in the same manner of those who reject you. So keep softening their hearts. Use us as instruments to help in the process. We thank you so much for your love towards us and we just commit all things to you for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit GBF sv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.